0: I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. Our scripture lesson for the morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, and I'll begin reading with verse 13. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. One of the oldest United Methodist Churches, In America is in the heart of Charleston and that will not surprise you because that is such an ancient city Bethel United Methodist Church and in my opinion the sanctuary of Bethel is one of the most beautiful in America it's a very different design but exceedingly worshipful it was built in 1852 so it's 171 years old 15 years ago Bethel had a crisis they discovered that termites were in the attic and had done so much damage the attic was about to fall into the sanctuary and so for quite a period of time they could not use the sanctuary while very extensive and expensive repairs were being made incidentally 10 years ago A similar disaster happened to Lebanon United Methodist Church on the east side of Columbia. Again, it was termites in the attic causing the damage. As dangerous as these insects can be to our buildings, there, there are even greater dangers to the church today, and we could call them spiritual termites. And I refer to weapons of Satan that he uses against his most hated enemy on earth, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And in our scripture lesson for today, Jesus tells us that the church will continue to battle these forces of Satan until Jesus returns in glory. The struggle is long and continuous. Our scripture lesson today, the 16th chapter of Matthew's gospel, happened at a remote place north of Israel. Let me set the scene for you. Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles north of Galilee, off the beaten track. If you go to a Holy Land, on a Holy Land tour today, they'll take you there. It's one of the favorite spots. It's really a source of the Jordan River. And it's amazing because you can actually see water surging out of the side of a cliff uh, to lead and form the Jordan. Jesus took the disciples there as a kind of teaching seminar because up there he was not surrounded by crowds and so he had some privacy to teach and to dialogue with the disciples. He asked them, who do most people say that I am? And they had heard all the rumors and so they answered. Some say you are the second coming of John the Baptist. Others say Jeremiah, Isaiah one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And that's really the heart of the matter, isn't it? Always. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus for you? Oh, it's wonderful if you had a godly mother, godly father, wonderful grandparents, that's great, but that won't save you. Every person has to give a personal answer to the question, Who is Jesus for you? And the boldest of the disciples, Simon Peter, always the one to answer first. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Following the early service this morning, one of the worshipers came up to me and said, Brother Bill, I believe that this was the disciples' final examination. And I think he's right, because from that point onward, we read that Jesus set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. Even today, nobody can claim Jesus Christ truly as Savior and Lord without the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus then said to Simon, you are Petrus, which is Greek for Peter. You are Petrus, and on this rock I will build my church. And this is the first place in the New Testament where the word church is used, ecclesia in the Greek. Our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters have understood Simon Peter, the first pope, the first leader of the church, to be the rock on which The church is founded, but we Protestants believe that the rock is Peter's profession of faith, Jesus Christ as the son of the living God. And then Jesus added, the gates of hell will not overcome it, the church. So let's go to today, to America today in the continuing battle between the church and the forces of evil. Notice that Jesus gives us an offensive strategy. Jesus did not say that the forces of hell will be battering on the gates of the church. No, it's the other way around. He said the, church, the Christian church will be attacking the gates of hell and is going to prevail. But you may be thinking, I don't see that happening today, Brother Bill. No, it doesn't seem to be. If you watch television and read your newspapers, you would conclude that Satan's secular forces seem to have the momentum. They are attacking our definition of marriage, the authority of the Bible, uh, our claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. But Jesus, he did not call us to hunker down and feel sorry for ourselves. He called us to go on offense. We are to take his truth boldly into the public sector and refuse to be intimidated or silenced. And that takes more faith and courage than most of us have. Therefore, we we need the, the guidance and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Because if we stand firm publicly for Christian values, do you think we're going to offend some people? Of course we will. But we must make sure that it's God's truth that does the offending, not us. We must speak the truth in love. Now let me point out four of the front lines where the forces of Satan that we call spiritual termites are battling the church of Jesus Christ and the truth of Holy Scripture. The first is this, the temptation to accept a counterfeit gospel. And this spiritual termite is as old as the church. Uh, St. Paul preached the gospel in a region called Galatia, which is part of today, Turkey. He founded a church there. And Paul's message was just the core of the gospel. You may be saved if you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Everywhere Paul went, his message was the same. It was consistent he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That was the message. And then Paul went on to other mission fields. Well, later, some false teachers came into the church in Galatia and began to spread a different gospel. They said, uh, no, that's not enough. What Paul said is not enough to be saved. No, you've got to be circumcised and follow certain other Jewish requirements and laws. Well, when Paul found out about those false teachers, it almost broke his heart. And he wrote to the church at Galatia and said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Well, is this spiritual termite still around in America today? Yes, it is. But today's counterfeit gospel sounds different you can hear it on TV quite frequently and if I could sum it up it sounds like this it doesn't matter what you believe as long as it fits your need and you're sincere one religion is as good as another there's no need to be concerned about sin or salvation because God is just all love and no judgment The only thing that matters is being kind, doing good, and living by the golden rule. That's it. Have you heard that? Of course you have. Uh, That generic false gospel is constantly on television. And I'm sorry to say is even taught in some of our seminaries. What would Paul's reaction to that gospel be? Hogwash, he would say. We are not saved by what we do but by what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus did not say he was one of several ways to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But when many secular Americans hear that, they scream, that is so narrow-minded, that is so intolerant, and... Jesus would not disagree with their assessment because Jesus had no problem with being narrow-minded as long as it did not refer to love. Indeed, Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. You are on that narrow road if you have confessed your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Our salvation is a gift from God, not a reward for good behavior. Beware of any gospel that claims otherwise. It's a product of Satan. A second spiritual termite that attacks the church of Jesus Christ is the temptation to forsake biblical authority. The current division that is occurring in the United Methodist Church and has already occurred in most mainline denominations is blamed often on a disagreement about sexual morality. That is not the basic issue. That is not the fundamental cause of division. The basic issue is this question. Is this book the inspired Word of God, as the Bible teaches? Or is it just an ancient book that needs a lot of modern revision and updating? That's it. That is the core of the division. Jesus taught that the Bible is our ultimate authority on the night before He died for us. He defined truth clearly when He prayed for us, saying, sanctify them by the truth. And then He defined truth. Your word is truth, he said. Most of America's current culture war is a battle between biblical and secular standards. The secular folks seem to have a different translation of the Bible. I call it the SR version, secular revised version. And according to this version, you keep the parts of the book you like And disregard the rest. There are some secular Americans who are trying to divide this country along racial lines. But the Bible says that all people are made in God's image and are equally valued. So you can't divide us. You shouldn't divide us. All lives matter, including black lives and unborn lives. There are some secular Americans who claim that you can be whatever gender you choose. And we certainly should be compassionate and caring and loving toward those people who experience gender confusion. But the Bible says that God made us male and female, and God does not make mistakes. There are some secular Americans and the Supreme Court who define marriage as any two people who want to live together but the Bible defines marriage as a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. There are some secular Americans who believe that truth is whatever most people think it is and you just take a public opinion poll and voila, out comes truth. Not so says the Bible. The Bible declares the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon used to say a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who is not. In other words, a well-used Bible makes a Christian strong. The temptation in America today is to depart from God's truth. And it's a dangerous spiritual termite that is destroying many churches. When a church denies or distorts the truth of Holy Scripture, the Holy Spirit departs and that church begins to die. How blessed we are to be part of a church like Mount Horeb that takes a strong stand for the truth of Holy Scripture. A third spiritual termite that's threatening God's house is forgetting God's blessings. Sometimes our attitude toward God is, what have you done for me lately? And we forget that shower of blessing that across the years enriched us, changed us, fortified us, supplied us. We forget in Psalm 106, the writer reviews God's mighty acts in liberating the Hebrew people from slavery down in Egypt. Talked about the plagues and how God brought the Israelites under Moses out of slavery. And how he separated the Red Sea so that the Hebrews could come through safely and then brought the waters together back to prevent the Egyptian army from overtaking them. But then in verse 13 of that psalm, the writer writes, they, the Israelites, soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his counsel. Don't we fall under the same indictment so often from time to time? When you look back across the years, can you recall special times, situations, when God's presence and power were so vital that your life, Took a decisive turn because of that or you were saved from some catastrophe when you were tilted in a good direction. Some of us refer to these as Ebenezer moments and that's based on words in a great hymn where, where we sing, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Have you reviewed lately your own set of Ebenezer moments? Maybe back to childhood, teenage years. Have you you reviewed them and said, thank you, Lord. I haven't forgotten. I've been walking in your grace and it's been decisive and I want to thank you. Let me tell you, I might not be alive today if my guardian angel had not intervened at some crucial moments. And I suspect you could say the same thing, too. Several years ago, I was invited to preach at a small church up in York County called Kings Mountain Chapel. And I went so gladly because that is a holy spot on my spiritual map. Because when I was 12 years old, uh, I was sitting on the back pew of that little church, and I heard the gospel proclaimed In a powerful way. And it touched my heart. And when I was given an invitation. I went down to that altar. And knelt there. And gave my heart to Christ. And he claimed me as his own child. Right then and there. And so several years ago. When I got a chance to preach there. I was delighted to do so. And at the end of my message. then I invited the people there. To do what I'd done. To come down to that altar. And make that same commitment. Many of them did. And I went down there too. Because I wanted to kneel in that holy spot. 60 years or so later, and say, thank you, Lord, for not only saving my soul, but for showering me with your grace in all these intervening years. Have you done that lately? As the great old hymn urges, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. And here's the fourth and final spiritual termite that threatens the church. It's forgetting our power source. Remember, just before Jesus ascended from earth to heaven, he gave instructions about power to the church. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift the Father promised. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost... The Holy Spirit fell like a tornado on the infant church and has been our power source ever since. Indeed, St. Paul taught us to be continually filled with the Spirit, receiving the Spirit afresh every day. Satan tempts us individually and as a church to depend on our own resources rather than the Holy Spirit after all we are strong we're smart and compared to the rest of the world we are wealthy and you know as Americans we have this tendency in us and it's good to be self-reliant problem solvers take initiative you know lift yourself up by your bootstraps that's good but there is no way that a church can thrive on its human and financial resources only the church does not belong to us Jesus said it is my church and the power of the Holy Spirit is essential if we're going to thrive and grow the Old Testament prophet Zechariah wrote not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord Almighty I think it was the first Bible epic movie I think it was Ben Hur, the first one with Charlton Heston uh, and you can see it even today on some of these classic movie channels and uh, the the producer was the great Cecil B. DeMille and when Charlton Heston was training to participate in that classic chariot race which is sort of climax of the movie He was having a hard time and so he said to Cecil B. DeMille he said I can hardly stay on this thing how in the world am I going to win and DeMille said your job is to stay on it it's my job to make you win the Lord says something similar to us in the church he says in the middle of all these denominational divisions and cultural battles that you're experiencing your job is to be faithful It is my job to make the church victorious. I'm an amateur historian, and one of my favorite subjects for reading is World War II, partly because my father was involved in that conflict. And uh, the historians differ as to what was the turning point in World War II. There are some who say that it was the Russian defeat of the Germans on the very outskirts of Moscow. But then there are other historians say, no, 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 it was the Normandy invasion, June 6, 1944. Uh, they, They differ on that. But there is no such argument about the turning point in God's battle against the forces of evil. It was the combination of the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord. But just as World War II continued for years after the turning point, So the spiritual battle between the church of Christ and the forces of evil continues even today, 2,000 years after the resurrection. But the outcome is not in doubt. The winner has been declared. And on some great day, and it could be today, Jesus will return. And then at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and underneath the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The late John Reith was a Scotsman who founded the British Broadcasting Company, the famous BBC. And during the 1960s, the same secularism that swept across America affected Great Britain, too. And one day at a meeting of the board of directors of the BBC, a young producer stood up and said, times are changing and the BBC must change also. It's time for us to drop our religious broadcasting. People are no longer interested in it. In fact, the church is becoming increasingly obsolete. And at that point, John Reith, the founder of the BBC, who was six feet, six inches tall, stood up to his full height, and he looked at that producer, and he said, Young man, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. The church will also outlive CNN and Fox News, and MSNBC, and Twitter, and every other social means of communication. Our Lord guaranteed it. He said, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And that's the good news. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you founded the church. It's your body. We desperately need your guidance and power today. A secular false gospel is spreading across the land while most churches are declining. There is no consensus in America about what truth is. We need a fresh outpouring of Holy Spirit power. Make us courageous and win some witnesses for your cross-centered gospel and the truth of Holy Scripture. Send revival, Lord, and let it begin with us. Amen.